Okay, we have a question here at the front and then one at the top on the front. Microphones are on their way. Just here, Ben. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Jonathan Cleary, GP in the Forest of Dean, and my question is to Iona and whoever else wants to answer. Um, I'm very glad that you raised the, uh, the issue of how we're remunerated. Um, and my question is whether if our leaders in the BMA went to the Department of Health and offered a unilateral pay cut, say 10, 20%, to kind of sway through all of that and stop being micromanaged and data collectors uh, and just got paid and did the best we could, do you think that that um, would be acceptable to the profession and to the Department of Health? And would that improve our ability to communicate honestly with our patients? I, I, I would have to agree that it was, would be worth taking a, a pay cut to get out of this bureaucratic stranglehold uh, because we are all aware of wasting a huge amount of time doing this. Um, but this is where Richard Horton's plea to everybody. The GPC is a very odd organisation. Local medical committees are slightly less odd. But, but people need to be in there to make the GPC a, a less... Uh, a less absolutely money-driven, uh, pension-driven organisation. You know, we can complain about the strike, but there is a delegate democracy at work here. And if we're not, if we disagree and we're not engaged at local level, and then and, and then agreeing to sit on the GPC, then in a way we only have ourselves to blame. The, 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 the wrong people are on the G not all of them aren't wrong, but there are a lot of people on the GPC who A, are far too old, and B, uh, I can say that, um, and B, um, you know, have, have different from priorities than, than have been very present in this room. Sarah? Yeah, thank you. Um, I, this, thank you. I, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this morning's discussion, so thank you all. Um, I wanted to make an observation, which is that that this, the way that we've set the stage for talking about communication here in this session has been what, what are we communicating has been the language that's been repeated. And this is to suggest that the we are the doctors or the health professionals. And it's also to suggest that it's about the what, which is the information. And many of the examples that have been provided are about the doctor's responsibility, so the three questions the doctor might ask the way we might write an information leaflet. But we could pitch the question differently. And, of course, we are all here patients and members of the public as well. We all know that. So, you know, what if it was how are we communicating together with the public, for example, or, or what are the public telling us that we aren't quite picking up on? So, so that's my general question for the panel, really. Thanks for that. Um, comments? The same debate talked uh, was when people were discussing the public uh, uh, understanding of science. And the feeling was it must be two-way. Uh, that, uh, first of all, we need to know what people want to know. And perhaps they've got things to tell us that actually need, they need to communicate. And, and, and I think that is one of the big problems, that it has to be uh, a two-way process. And, in fact, you can only have good communication within a context of equality. 
where there isn't somebody handing down the tablets of stone and somebody else taking them as a suppository, as it were. It's got to be really, uh, you know, a, a, a meeting of equals. And the, the humble feeling that perhaps I don't know what this person wants from me, and can you tell me what you want from me, is, is, is not a bad place to start, I guess, um, irrespective of the time issue, which we've touched on before. Yeah. Yeah. Any other comments on that? Well, just, 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 just getting uh, much more lay input into the writing of patient information leaflets would be a, a, a good move. But as I say, it does have this thing of the clergy and the, and the Bible about it that's, you know... Lay input. You often get professional lay people, don't you, who may not be always representative of the laity. Yes. <laughs> I, one, of the, one of the most interesting people I, I ever met was in a, in a, at the World Health Assembly... Uh, I, I met someone in a queue over lunch, and this was an American guy who was a retired general physician, and he had founded an organization of physician advocates, and they were uh, people who were no longer in active clinical practice but wanted to, to uh, give something to patients. And they uh, set up an organization and uh, offered themselves as advocates for patients in the patient's journey through the healthcare system. And I offer that as an idea I think is just brilliant. And for anyone who's recently you know, stepped down from senior Domestic office, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's, I think it would be a great thing to develop an organization like that in this country. But in a sense, that's almost a, a treatment of despair. It assumes that the ordinary process is irremediable and you have to bring somebody from the outside to act as the patient's advocate. I totally understand why, but it does, in a way, it was like the PALS, you know, uh, which, which in a way hasn't quite worked. And that was originated simply because it was felt that patients did need advocates while they were going through the process. Wouldn't it be better if those advocates were the people that they were meeting as they were going through the process? It would be. But I agree, I can yeah, see. It yeah. Would be. Yeah. Uh, I think Nigel Jones has, has the microphone. Nigel Jones, geriatrician. Um, a question and a plea, and if the panel agrees, how do we communicate what I believe is the need for the de-demonizing and the rehumanizing of our older, more frailer members of society with multiple conditions to avoid what I perceive as their marginalization on the basis of ignorance at best and blatant avoidance at worst of appropriate care services on the basis of uh, their enormous costs and the negative perception of them being bed blockers and other terms that we can use? Sure. I mean, I, my personal view is that we need to hear their voice because it is completely compelling, even as an oncologist, I say with horror, if I sit down and talk to somebody who has those multiple morbidities but just happens to have cancer, what they tell me about the right outcome for however much I'm contributing is immense and, and also much wider than that. So they are, they are actually the lifeblood of where we ought to go with all this because they're 70, in, in an acute hospital, they're 75% of the patients we admit, actually inappropriately so in very many cases, but we need to hear their voice, and I, we, we're not doing it very well at the minute, and I'm sure there's lots of ways we could improve that, but they will tell us that we, if we ask them. Have you got a view on the answer to that, Nigel? Um, personally, I don't like the old stigma of self-closure. I think the evidence doesn't necessarily need to be badly assessed. It's just fear. It's taking a sense of fear. It's always attempting to delude us. And we know that some people go on to emergency departments with excellent care to those who are relatively well with no problem, yet we fail those who seem to be the one thing that's just around is dealing with a relatively sick person. Um, I think we know it. I don't think we need necessarily the evidence 
As a jurisdiction, you know, I would have punted those two questions, you know, because they are absolutely, you know, up my street. I suppose one thing, it, it makes our opposition or, uh, to the NHS and social care bill even more urgent, because if there's one group of people who are going to be torn apart by the atomization and marketization of the health service, it's people who have multiple pathology and have both health care and social support needs. Uh, geriatric medicine will disappear completely, and it, it, it will be, or care of frail older people will be very, very badly damaged. So I'm not sure I've got a solution to the present problem, but I know that one thing we need to do is make sure those problems don't get 10,000 times worse. Gentleman at the back. Uh, Tim so Dornan from Maastricht. I'd like to say that I think Sean's presentation introduced something incre uh, incredibly important into the discussion because he made the outcomes of healthcare problematic by saying that survival was a bad outcome. And so my question to the panel, and then if I may, I'd like to just say a word or two qualifying, um, just elaborating it slightly. My question is, how do we define the task of medicine in a truly democratic way? My personal experience is that evidence-based medicine has been a very authoritarian way of defining the outcome of medicine because it makes the randomized controlled trial a standard um, which is more or less unassailable. I was a diabetes doctor, and I ceased to look after patients with diabetic foot ulcers because it was utterly unacceptable in the diabetic community to say that amputation was a good outcome. Um, and Elliot Jocelyn, in the 1920s, wrote, it is no triumph to save a man's leg if he spends half of his remaining life expectancy in hospital. So I repeat the question, how do we truly, in a democratic way, rather than us, the professional politicians, politicizing outcomes, how do we really find what matters to people? I would say by talking to them and listening to them and asking them the question. I could not agree more uh, that, that, that payment by results systems based on evidence-based systems are totally authoritarian. Um, and one of the... Um, just another anecdote that may become data. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the general practice system in Orkney in Scotland, where they have a hospital entirely run by GPs, apart from two surgeons and two anaesthetists, they do everything there. They do chemotherapy, they do dialysis, they do everything. And their outcomes are as good as the mainland, except um, they have a, 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 a slightly lower expectation of life for very frail and very sick people. And it's because it's so much easier for old people to refuse to get on a helicopter or refuse to get on a plane than it is to refuse to get an ambulance to go 10 yards, you know, 100 yards down the road. Uh, 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 something that we need to learn from that about genuinely engaging with people about what they want in their particular situation. And if the answer to that is, to, to caricature it terribly, uh, futile attempts at CPR, a vast and at great costs to society rather than uh, aims at not I or you, but uh, might be rationally more sensible and thought through. So be it. Deliver what's, deliver what's asked for. Deliver what people... I, I'm going to have, uh, you know, yeah. back off, junior doctor. No CPR. <laughs> In fact, there was a wonderful... There is a wonderful film of an old lady having... 
But yeah, you're, you're, your question's but asking about how to get that answer more strategically, more globally, isn't it, rather than explicitly the individual? But I think the question needs to be clarified. I think, Tim, you're conflating two things. One is well-designed trials can tell you how to get to a particular outcome. They won't tell you whether that outcome should be regarded as desirable or not. You may well indeed have other work to be done. And that's true even, when you talk, even more so when you talk about proxy outcomes. For example, lowering blood pressure makes no difference to a person's life, but obviously it may or may not stop the stroke. The lowering the blood pressure is a proxy outcome, or lowering cholesterol. So I think there is two bits of work to be done to be kept separated. How do you get the means to a particular end? And is that the end of the right one? I think, Tim, I don't want to paraphrase you at all here. Forgive me if I've got this wrong. Although I'd agree with you, it's a tool. There's something about, are you suggesting that there's something about the authority of that data once it's out that makes it almost impossible to disregard and informs, in fact, the values Well, I mean, so how would you see that? So what would your answer be as to realising or discovering, clarifying the legitimate goals of medicine, which is, I think, what you're alluding to? Oh, OK. <laughs> I'm going to press you on, on asking you for a solution. Illness, yeah. Sam, Sam, I think I've yes. got the solution, sure. yeah. got solution. Uh, without wanting to trivialise it, but that is to measure the number of patients following consultation with nurses, doctors, or whatever, who choose not to have the intervention. Yeah. Yeah, just very right. briefly, I mean, actually, you know, Harvey Carell's book has a recommendation on the back of it from me, because I, 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 I sat up all night and read it, and it's a brilliant book, and she and I have talked many times about precisely those things, but I don't think these are actually separate things. Of course, there are many dimensions to communication. I focused on one particular aspect. You mentioned, you use the E-word, as far as I know, when you talk about something that's happening in Belgium. I think you mentioned there was evidence about something happening in Belgium. Well, one would like to know it was good evidence, and I, that's fine. Yeah. I'm going to move you on, actually. Sorry. You, you two can carry on this conversation uh, <laughs> later on, if that's all right. Um, we have a microphone here in the middle. Uh, my name's Adam, and I'm a doctor. And I'm not going to be ashamed Welcome of it. Group. Yeah. Um, because I think there is a risk that in browbeating ourselves as a profession, those of us in the room who are doctors, we lose sight of what it is that makes you up there on the platform, that gives us the authority to speak, and that gives us the power to communicate. And um, I think what Just it tell is... tell me what those are. Well, it's not the white coat, which shows how long it is since you've been in a hospital. Um, it is partly our knowledge... And let's not underplay the knowledge. We all make great play of the fact that I've forgotten all the anatomy I ever learned, but actually we're quite clever, and let's not lose sight of that as a group. 
The good doctor brings that knowledge together with the communication skills and the patient-centred skills and all the other stuff that much of this, se- this whole programme has been about. And so we can identify and talk about the good doctor, but we shouldn't lose sight of what it is that makes a good doctor, and that is partly our knowledge, status, um, intelligence, and all those other things that legitimises the position. Okay, I'm just going to present that, if I may, Adam, to the panel. So knowledge and status and cleverness. Sorry, but I absolutely hate the phrase communication skills. Um, It makes it entirely instrumental. You are going to communicate this with this patient, and you're going to use your skills to your end of delivering medical care. What we need to be developing is seriously genuine, imaginative interest in the other human being in the room. Communication skills do not do that. But there are lots of counsellors who have genuine... There are lots of counsellors who have genuineness. I don't, I don't disagree with you, and I'm not going to use the phrase communication skills. It's just what we've been talking about. Um, it's really what makes a good doctor is one who does that intuitively. But what is it that makes a doctor a doctor and not a nurse, and not a physiotherapist, and not a counsellor? It is bringing together several strands of knowledge and personal abilities and personal qualities. So I'm going to be really annoying here and just push you on what those are. Well, I, I, well my real point is that we've been talking about what have... But what are really, those qualities? We've been talking in, you know, yesterday and today about the softer skills, mm. so-called, which is a bad way of putting it, because they're not softer, they're quite definable and identifiable, mm-hmm. whether you label them communication skills or whatever. Interest, love, cropped up yesterday as a word. So it's all of that, but it's that in a particular role, a particular setting, and with a particular background. Doctors are doctors. Maybe that's not the right way we should do it, but we are here. They're not nurses. They're not counsellors. We're not counsellors. We are something special. And so I'm just asking people not to lose sight of something that makes doctors different. Anyone want to come back on the specialness of doctors? <laughs> are there any nurses in the audience? I mean, you know, we can carry on all day, really. There's no, no one's got it. Anyone want any comments? on? Yes, there are some, there's someone up here on... Oh, here we go at the back there. The lady in the um, purple scarf, just at the back, please. Thank you. Thank you. As somebody who's been referred to today and yesterday as the public, the patient, the client, I'm a user rep and work quite hard with the Gloucestershire Three Counties. I think what you've got to try and do is get more user reps into your lives. I go to some meetings and they all speak in acronyms. Then I go to another meeting where, well, Fiona has n- bonus has now left, but she took the trouble to explain what all those were. And I know people, users, have gone to these meetings and come away and said, my God, what was all that about? Uh, you know, you've got to come, when you're talking to the public, the user, the client whatever you like to call us, please speak to us in our language, not yours. Can I just but, ask you... But, just Gabriel. respond to that. Yeah. I, I think you're quite right. I agree with you. But, of course, one of the defining uh, attributes of a profession is that it has its own language and it keeps itself to itself and it, it, and it uh, restricts access to those skills. So what is being played out is some of this uh, reinforcing stuff that the medical profession does to, uh, to uh, cement its position. And I, I think that position 
is in danger of being lost, but it is being danger of lost uh, of being lost because we've been driven into this production forest approach. I think, and uh, we need to move away from that. Any other comments from the panel on that at all? I, guess, I mean, Adam's comment. I'm very sympathetic. What Adam? It is Adam, isn't it? It is said. I mean, essentially, it seems to me that. There are context, a context in which a doctor has a legitimate authority of a certain sort, a nurse has a legitimate authority of a certain sort, and each brings different things to the party. And I, I would support what he says. There is something distinctive that doctors bring. It is a body of knowledge, most usually. It is a, series, it is a, tr a training that includes acquisition of skills, and one hopes an attitude that's, you know, all the usual things. But it seems to me that I hope, as a doctor, when I run my epilepsy clinics for 20 years, I was able to provide something to the patient that others couldn't. Uh, you know, and part of it was a gradually accumulated knowledge of what it's like for people who have epilepsy, what sort of help they felt they needed, and what would help to provide that help. And that was an accumulated body of knowledge over a long period of time. And I think I brought that distinctive thing to the party. And I'm sure as oncologists, you feel you bring something very distinctive to the party. Well, possibly, but I, I, I'm pretty willing to imagine there's people in the audience who are social workers, nurses, physiotherapists, psychologists who wouldn't make who the would same uh, contestation. Yes. Absolutely, yes. Not With the, the user's comment, just, uh, this may be an unfair question to ask you, but why are uh, groups of patients, what, what is, where did the semantic user arrive from? I mean, if we're talking about communication with and choosing the right words... The particular word is that if we're worrying about markets um, rather than care, does the word user, is it the right word, do we think? Well, I don't think no. it is, but no. it's one that's it's dreamt up yes. by somebody, yes, and yes. that was the label that I've been given. Yeah, 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 sure, quite. But I don't think there are too many user reps here today. No, well, we, we'll get them all in next year, I think. At the back... Angela Hay, I'm not a doctor. I work in diabetic eye screening. And I've just taught interested in patient education. And I question the validity of a retail outlet in the middle of the hospital that sells many items of no nutritional value at all adjacent yeah, yeah. to the patient information leaflets about how they ought to lead their lives and live a healthier life. I absolutely agree and um, you know when you see Burger King in hospitals and McDonald's in, in hospitals as there have been for some time and when you see uh, Ronald McDonald cancer care wards for children I think uh, that is a step too far yes. <laughs> uh, because we need to understand that there are global forces at work that are um, uh, against health and uh, seeking to make money out of ill health and the greatest of all vested, the most evil of all vested interests is the vested interest uh, in ill health and I include the, 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 the multinationals um, in that and I, I do think it is completely irresponsible uh, for hospitals um, to be selling un, unhealthy food in them. It's completely sure, irresponsible. Sure, yeah, we've got I mean, some... Here, here, here to that and I completely failed on this because I've had a sort of mental and, and discursive campaign for some time to change the WRVS trolley that goes around the wards from sweets to fruit and completely failed but I don't understand why I failed because for the life of me selling sweets around the hospital on the WRVS trolley feels like the wrong message. I wouldn't but, be because it, was it a one-man campaign? Because in many ways, one of the things is we don't realise our collective professional strength in this situation, that if the staff, nurses, doctors, and so on, rose up against this outlet that was flogging, uh, you know, metabolic toxins, then it would seem to me that, it, that, that, that there would be 
The argument would be one. But yeah. part of the problem, Ray, is that a lot of patients in, in hospital are actually hungry because the food that they're offered <laughs> is so bad. <laughs> It is so bad, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm struggling to know what I'm going to say to the patient when they insist on their Mars bar and I suddenly enter that debate because I'm losing on the Avastin one. I, I wasn't going to speak, but I happen to have the microphone in my hand, so... <laughs> and I'm partly sparked by something you said, Iona, but really agitated by Adam. So my name's Sarah and I'm a counsellor. I'm a primary care counsellor up in Worcestershire, working in several doctor's surgeries. And I wanted to say, pick up on a comment you made about communication, Iona, which was about 10% of the patients who are labelled with depression have actually got a horrible disease. And the other 90% are ground down by their lives in some way. And... Uh, it's a whole issue of communication in a way. I joined the NHS 20 years ago deliberately as a subversive because I wanted to challenge the medicalization of life's problems, which at that point, which is quite a long time ago now, you'd be given Valium or antidepressant. So I wanted to help try and change that thinking. And over the years, what I've discovered is once I get a sense that the person hasn't got this horrible disease, I ask them to take off the label, depression, that's been given to them by their doctor and say, you know, my experience is often it's people are disheartened or dispirited. Mm. And what that does is they will either then open about what part of their heart has been crushed by their life and they'll start to talk and tell me their story. Or if this is also important, that their, their lack of ease is spiritual, they'll start to talk in that way as well. And changing depression to disheartened and to dispirited, yeah. that m move in communication has unlocked so much and the sessions become so powerful. We have time for one final comment from a non-medic there. Thanks, Sam. I think that was me. Um, I'm involved in engineering education, and I'm here just for interest and as a member of the public. As a medical profession, you're actually massively blessed that it's a high-status profession, and the trust ratings you've got are sky-high. In the engineering world, it was about 2006, 2007, there was a report about public perceptions of engineering which concluded basically that the public didn't perceive engineering and where they did, they didn't care. That triggered actually a sea change in the direction and the alignment and the cohesion of the whole engineering community to do something about that. And it led to the creation of things like the Big Bang Fair, which is to inspire young people with the STEM subjects, but across the whole span of STEM, including medicine, in there, and that's tracked by things like these. There's a brand perceptions index that's a survey carried out by Engineering UK. I've learned things over the last two days that have incredibly inspired me from listening to the discourse here, and particularly learning things about the atomization and the marketization of the healthcare system. And the perception I came in to this conference uh, about medicine and about healthcare 
was actually coloured by newspaper reporting about GPs able to earn fantastic salaries and yet complaining about the shortness of the consultations that they have with the patients. What I've come away learning now is about the benefits that come to the patient, to the person from multidisciplinary approaches. And so if you could, I'll leave you with the thought that if there's one thing you need to communicate here, it is about the benefits coming from the multidisciplinary approach and the joined-up nature of the teams that you can bring together in the trusts and the GP practices. Because that's the thing that has real resonance and currency in the lives of, of the public. And to contextualise that with the experiences of, in the geriatric care system and the multiple dependencies and multiple conditions in there, that's what makes it real to people. That's what things like the Big Bang Fair have done for young people, is to give them an, an, uh, an opportunity to encounter the real-life applications of subjects and disciplines that seem totally alien to them and outside their experience in schools. I don't have a question to add to that. No, thank you. Thank you.